I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here, but how many of you have set out on a diet? And after a few weeks, you've gotten into the rhythm, and it's not that hard after all. But then the holiday comes. Family and friends over to your house, favorite carb-rich foods are placed before you, and then it becomes really tough. Or how many of you have started out on an exercise program? And it was tough at the beginning, but it got to be a little easier. You get into your routine, and then it's vacation time. Or then you have a long business trip, long hours. Your routine is different, and it becomes tempting to leave out exercise for a day or a few days. But even more serious, remember when you first got married And you wondered, what problem could possibly come our way that would interfere with our closeness and our romance? But it didn't take too long, did it? Until the challenges and stresses of life began to press in. God uses that pressing in to make us depend upon him, to sanctify us. And the same is true in the Christian life. We initially by grace, come to repentance and faith in Christ. And it's a wonderful, glorious relationship with the Lord, and it seems easy at first. But then spiritual warfare begins. The attractions of the world tempt us, and trials come that test our faith, and it gets hard. And sometimes we're tempted to give up. Well, we're in this sermon series in the book of Hebrews called Pressing On Because of the Supremacy of Christ, and our text today contains the importance of persevering in the Christian life, holding firm to our faith in Jesus Christ and obeying his word, even when times get tough. The author addresses perseverance in believing and following Christ because some of the professing Jewish Christians who were experiencing greater persecution had left the faith, had gone back to Judaism, and others in the body were considering it as well. And so the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1 deals with the supremacy of Christ. He talks about how Christ is God, the creator, and superior to the angels. In chapter 2, he warns of drifting away from the faith and how Christ came and took on a human body and nature like ours in every respect except sin to be our high priest, to receive the wrath of God for our sins in order to reverse the curse of the fall and make us part of his family. And last week, Pastor Tim preached on the first part of chapter 3, where the author makes the case that even though Moses was a great mediator and faithful in God's house, Jesus was far greater and worthy of more glory because he is God the Son. He is the builder of God's house, the church, and we are his house if we hold fast in confidence and boasting in him as our hope. Well, our text today is chapter 3, verses 7 through 19, and the writer gives a dire warning against turning away from Christ, and he quotes Psalm 95. Psalm 95 was very familiar to the Jews. 
It was read every Sabbath day, and it contains a call to worship and a warning. And the writer of Hebrews uses it to illustrate unbelief, the unbelief of the Israelites right after they went through the Exodus. And he communicates that it's possible for professing believers to harden their hearts and fall away and not enter the saving rest of God. And so he gives instruction on how to keep oneself from unbelief and how those who have had the benefits of the word of God and his temporal blessings can be hardened and not receive the blessings of salvation. So follow along as I read Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. This is the word of God. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Well, the author begins by saying in the first part of verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. Here we are on this Reformation Sunday, and one of the main doctrines rediscovered by Luther and the Reformers was the doctrine of sola scriptura. Scripture alone, belief in the Bible as God's word, and the only authority for truth and life. You see, the medieval church had drifted away from this belief. They began looking to the church's traditions and the church's leaders, and that even trumped the authority of Scripture. If you read in our worship guide today in your bulletin, the medieval church services were all in Latin. Nobody could understand it except the clergy themselves. There was no exposition of Scripture. And the Eucharist, which was celebrated, was was celebrated in an unbiblical way. They had unbiblical beliefs about the Lord's Supper. The Reformation brought back the Bible and its reading in the vernacular, in the language of the people, and expository preaching from God's Word became the center of worship. Why? Because they believed The Bible was inspired by God, solely sufficient for growth and sanctification. And so the writer of Hebrews here is attesting to this because he says, as the Holy Spirit says. 
He's referring to Psalm 95. Psalm 95's author was David, but really behind David, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit speaking when the Word of God is read and preached. The writer ended last week with verse 6 by saying, We are in Christ's house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And so he's referring back to this when he says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then he begins to quote Psalm 95. To hold fast, believers must be aware of the temptations that led to the falling away of the Israelites in the wilderness. The author now confronts us with an example of what the opposite of holding fast looks like. And so the first main point that God is teaching us in this text is a warning about heart hardening with an illustration. A warning about heart hardening with an illustration. The author continues with the second half of verse 7 through verse 9. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my work for 40 years. How do we hear the voice of God? We hear the voice of God through the scriptures. Just as he told us, the Holy Spirit speaks through the Bible. And the writer of Hebrews is being used by the Holy Spirit as he, as he writes the book of Hebrews, and as he's quoting this psalm, we're hearing from the voice of God. This is how we hear God. But he's not just concerned about us hearing God's voice, is he? He warns them that instead of responding in faith and obedience, we can hear the voice of God in the scriptures and yet harden our hearts. How did the Israelites harden their hearts? Well, they rebelled on the day of testing in the wilderness. And I believe this psalm is referring to a number of events that happened. One of them would be Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. The Israelites experienced the miracles of the plagues, the Passover, the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea on dry ground, the Egyptian army being drowned. And three days after that, they set out and they got to a place where they ran out of water. Or they came to a place called Mara where it had bitter water. It was not drinkable. And so they grumbled to Moses. And Moses went to the Lord and the Lord told him to throw a log in the water. And God miraculously caused that water to be drinkable, to be sweet. Well, when they set out from there, they came to the wilderness of sin. And the whole congregation grumbled, saying they wished they had died in Egypt because at least in Egypt they had meat and bread. Well, God gave them bread to eat. He caused manna to fall down from heaven. And they had a portion every day for 40 days, and 40 years rather. But then they went to a place called Rephidim, where again they ran out of water. And they quarreled to Moses. And Moses told them that by doing so, they were testing the Lord. They were provoking him. Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I going to do with these people? And God told him to follow his presence. 
and that he would hover over a rock and at that rock he was to strike his staff and when he did water poured out and Israel Israel's thirst was quenched and Moses called that place Meribah which means rebellion and Massa which means testing you see the Holy Spirit says in Psalm 95 don't do what the Israelites did they were tested in the wilderness with these challenges when they ran out of water when they ran out of food God wanted them to have faith that he would provide but instead they grumbled they were faithless at Moses and and God they wanted to go back to Egypt the other Old Testament passage that I think is reflected in this text is from Numbers chapter 14 which records Israel's revolt against the Lord in Numbers 13 God had Moses send out 12 spies into the land of Canaan this land that he had promised to be their inheritance well they came back and most of them emphasized the negatives they gave a sobering report about how the people were strong the cities were large and fortified and they said we will not be able to go against these people they're much stronger than we are only these two spies Joshua and Caleb had faith and urged otherwise Joshua pleaded with the people do not rebel against the Lord's plans do not fear these people nonetheless Numbers 14 records their rebellion in Numbers 14 11 it says and the Lord said to Moses how long will this people despise me and how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them Moses pleaded to the Lord to forgive the people to to spare them and God did spare them but he also punished a number of them Israel rebelled against God's will they failed to submit to his commands they failed to trust him and in this they put God to the test they provoked God in his righteous anger their hearts were hardened and it says that from the first year to the 40th year these people tried the patience of God there are many examples of them in the wilderness of their unbelief their faithlessness but despite that God was good he provided them with water and food he was with them in the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night he continued to provide for their clothes and their shoes by not allowing them to wear out but in verse 10 it says of God therefore I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart they have not known my ways the Israelites had hardened their hearts in other words they had a fixed attitude of disbelief and disobedience to God and this led to more ignorance of God and his ways see this was what a hardened heart does it becomes more and more impervious to God's voice and it leads to increasing ignorance of his ways and the psalmist recalls the terrible words of God in verse 11 as I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest God had this unshakable determination that this generation older than 20 would not enter the promised land and that's why they wandered around for 40 years until all of that generation died off except for Joshua and Caleb 
Well, after this warning to not be like the Israelites when they were tested, this leads us to the second point where with his pastoral heart, the author talks about the remedies for unbelief. That's point number two, the remedies for unbelief. The first remedy is found in verse 12, and that is to take care. Point A, take care. Take care, brothers, it says, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. How do we prevent ourselves from turning away, from going astray? We take care. Now, that's not, that doesn't mean what we use it for today. When we say take care, we're asking people to take care of themselves or take it easy. But no, this term means see to it. Watch out. Give attention to this immediately. What are they to take care of? Well, they're to recognize and examine if there be an evil unbelief in their hearts. They're to recognize unbelief in God and His Word. You see, unbelief is evil. The basis for all sin is unbelief. Remember when the serpent tempted Eve in the garden, what did he say? Did God actually say? It's doubting what God told us about Himself about his commands, about his will, about what he has promised. Choosing to disbelieve God is choosing to believe a lie. Choosing to believe the devil. Choosing to believe the world. Choosing to believe our sinful flesh. And what does an evil, unbelieving heart lead to? It leads to a hardening of the heart. And then a falling away from the living God. This word falling away in the Greek is where we get the word apostatize. Now, is this text teaching that true believers can fall away from grace? No. That would be contrary to so many other passages in the Bible. Jesus told us in John chapter 10, verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. God has elected his people before the foundation of the world. Salvation is all of God's sovereign grace. But there are people in the church who profess faith but do not have true saving faith. They've never been born again. We see this in the parable of the soils. Jesus said they are like the seed that fell on rocky ground with shallow soil and the sun rose and scorched the seeds. Or the seed that fell among thorns and they were choked out. How can we know if we are people with true faith? Well, it's not just intellectually understanding who Jesus is and what he came to do and our need for Christ and our sin and the God's law, and how we cannot fulfill his law, but it also means trusting in him, relying upon him, having union with him, and when we do that, we will persevere in our faith. We will heed these warnings. We will be on the lookout for unbelief in our hearts, and we will repent of it when we see it. We will take care. We will not fall away. In other words, 
if a professing Christian apostatizes, that person was only a professing Christian and not a true Christian, a true believer. Otherwise, the Holy Spirit would have brought conviction in their heart and given them the ability to repent of their sin. The second remedy for unbelief is found in verse 13, point B, exhort one another. Look at verse 13, the author says, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You'll notice this work of persevering is not just an individual work or effort, but it's a family affair. It takes the whole church. We're to exhort one another every day. We're to encourage one another to be faithful and believing. You see, that's because sin deceives and we sometimes cannot recognize it on our own. When we are being deceived by it, sometimes we can allow this deception of sin to go unchecked and it can lead to a hardening of our hearts. We become blind or numb to the sin. In my ministry, uh, over these many years, I've come across people who are professing Christians who know the Bible, but they have committed an obvious sin, and yet they don't realize it. They're deceived into believing it's not a sin. And they've developed a certain hardness and almost a blindness to that sin. And these are often people who have a distant relationship to the church. In other words, they come every once in a while. They're not really engaged in the ministry or the fellowship of the church. So they don't have others around them who can exhort them. We're to exhort one another as long as it's called today. That term today is found three times in our text. And it communicates urgency. Don't put it off until tomorrow. That means in the present, while we still have an opportunity, we're to be involved in exhorting one another. The third remedy for unbelief is found in verse 14. Point C, we are to hold firm to the end. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we, have, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. True believers will be reminded that they are new creatures in Christ. They've been regenerated. They have a new nature. They've come to share in Christ. That means we are brought into fellowship with him. We share in his life. Like Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, as we realize this each day, we will hold our original confidence to the end. Now, what is he talking about when he talks about original confidence? Well, obviously, it's not confidence in ourselves. It's confidence in Christ. He's talking about the gospel here. The Bible teaches that we're sinners, we cannot save ourselves. And the reason for that is God is a holy God and he demands perfect obedience to his commandments and we fall short. We, we sin actively or passively against his laws. He's also perfectly just. 
he must punish every sin in hell forever. And we have a sin debt that we cannot repay. We cannot atone for our sins. And so we cannot provide salvation by ourselves through our own works. Jesus came to do that for us. He came to this earth, took on a human body and a human nature without sin and remaining God in order to be our substitute. He came to fulfill the commandments for us in our place so that he would transfer that record of righteousness, all of his merit to our account. Think of that. Jesus lived in the wilderness when he came to this earth and he obeyed God through all the temptations that are found in this fallen world as a human being. He was thirsty, he was hungry, he was threatened, but he did not allow the deceitfulness of sin and evil unbelief to take hold, to come into his heart. He always submitted to the Father, always trusted in him. He did that for our sake. But he also came to suffer for our sake, to go to the cross, to receive the debt of our sin, and he, in our place, received the wrath of God that we deserved. He received this through his suffering and his bleeding and his dying in our place, so that those that he came to die for would receive forgiveness of their sins. And so, all who are born again, who turn from their sin and their rebellion against God, who rest on Jesus, who he is and what he came to do for their salvation, they are declared righteous before God. They're forgiven of all their sin. They're adopted into God's family. They're united with Christ. They're indwelt with the Holy Spirit and they're given the gift of eternal life forever in heaven with God. And the resurrection of Christ guarantees this because the resurrection shows us that he in fact is God, the Messiah. He accomplished salvation for us. He had victory over death and sin and the devil for us. And this is why Jewish Christians cannot go back to Judaism because Jesus is God the Son. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. His person and work is the only way we are saved and have a share in the rest of of God in the inheritance, the promised land of heaven. Have you received this new nature? And have you turned from your rebellion and sin against God and trusted in the work of Christ and his person alone for your salvation? Make sure that this has occurred in your life today. And believers, you must continually reject any self-righteousness and keep your grip on him, on his work alone, on, on this original confidence that we have. You see, we never get away from this original confidence. We never move on from the gospel. We need to continue to cling to Christ and the gospel every day. Well, the fourth remedy for unbelief is found in verse 15. Point D, listen and obey. The author repeats what he has just quoted in verse 7. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Why does he repeat this again? Well, because we daily need to listen to God's word. One of the important ways that we keep ourselves from a hardening heart 
is listening to God speak to us through his word. And as you read his word, pray. Pray that you might understand what he's telling you about himself, what he's revealing to you about your sin, what he's telling you you need to believe about him and his promises. See, resistance to obedience is a sin and rebellion. So we need to pray, God, show me. Is there a hardening taking place? Am I becoming numb to sin? Is there a resistance to your will in my life and what you are telling me from your word? One way we keep from being hardened is daily humbling ourselves before God, recognizing your sin, repenting of this sin, and looking to Christ and his grace in the gospel to motivate you towards greater love and obedience. Well, our text in this chapter closes by the author reflecting again on the Israelites and how they did not enter the promised land. And he gives a series of self-explanatory questions or rhetorical questions in verses 16 through 19. And so we come to the third point of our text, a warning to the spiritually privileged. A warning to the spiritually privileged. The first question is found in verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? And he answers, was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? In other words, he's saying, think about it. These were the people who were miraculously delivered from slavery. These were the ones who were led by the great Moses. These are the ones who heard God speak. These are the ones who saw God perform many miracles to rescue them and sustain them and protect them, and yet they rebelled. Their unbelief is almost more amazing than belief. Verse 17 says, and with whom was he provoked for 40 years? In other words, they kept provoking God, even though they saw people dying because of the consequences of their sins. It wasn't the pagans around them, but the people that he called to himself and delivered for 40 years. He says, was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? They knew that they had provoked God and the consequences of that provoking, but they did not change. They reaped the consequences. Only, the only exception, of course, was Joshua and Caleb. And then in verse 18 and 19 it says, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. You see the point here? They're not able to enter because of their unbelief. They didn't enter God's rest. Unbelief and disobedience go hand in hand. They provoke God and the consequences are that they would not enter God's salvation. We're confronted with the fact here, aren't we, that all of us are spiritually privileged people, just like they were. And it, and it should have been the obvious response of these spiritually privileged people to believe God, to trust Him, to not harden their heart. But they were disobedient. They refused to believe. They deliberately chose to follow their own desires and their hearts were hardened and they persist, persisted in this hard heart and they did not enter into the promised land. 
So what have we seen here? We've seen the warning about heart hardening from the illustration of the Israelites after the Exodus. We've seen the remedy for avoiding this unbelief. And we've seen the warning to the spiritually privileged. So what? How do we apply these truths to our lives and the way that we act and speak? Well, let me give you some application points. But before I do that, I want you to know that believers and the church parallel Israel of the Old Testament. You see, we've been delivered from slavery. We've had our own exodus experience where we have been saved. We've been brought out of the kingdom of Satan into his kingdom. But we are on this journey through the wilderness of this life in this fallen world. And we are being tested just as the Israelites had to endure testing in the wilderness, so do we. And the sooner we realize this, the better. You see, the trials and the testings will manifest the reality of our faith or the lack thereof. The testing will reveal the true condition of our hearts. Are our hearts relying on the Lord or just the temporal blessings of this life? When things go badly, do you check yourself and respond with belief instead of grumbling? We're being tested and tempted to harden our hearts, to blame God, to complain, to doubt the power and love and promises of God, to turn back to the world and sin. But we need to remind ourselves of what God did for us in Christ through his incarnation, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. All of that demonstrated his love for us, his care for us, the extent that he went to to provide for our salvation. He will provide for us if he provided this for us, and he is enough. He disciplines and he sanctifies us because he loves us, and he wants to prepare us for heaven. And so the first application point is, will you heed this warning of falling away? Evidence that you are a true believer is that this passage will stop you in your tracks right now and you will assess your life. You will heed this warning with all seriousness and proper godly fear of not wanting to develop a hard heart and fall away. So are you seeking to persevere and to bear the fruit of belief and obedience? Yes, God is the true cause of our perseverance. He perseveres in preserving our faith, but he does this also by causing us to cooperate with his Holy Spirit in practicing these remedies against unbelief. Number two, are you practicing the remedies against unbelief? Are you taking care by examining your heart, making sure that you're not being deceived by sin, that sin hasn't crept in because unbelief leads to disobedience. Disobedience leads to a hard heart. A hard heart leads to falling away. See, this passage shows us that it's possible for sinful unbelief to be found in the church. And so are you taking care to look for it in your own life and to repent of it? Number two, or, or the second one of these remedies is to be exhorted and to exhort. And so ask yourself, are you involving yourself in the body life of the church? Are you seeking deeper spiritual relationships and conversations 
to be exhorted and to exhort that you might not develop a hardened heart. See, we know isolation from the church was a dangerous habit that existed even in the early church. How do we know that? Because later on, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 25, do not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, it's often in isolation to the church that we fall. But supportive spiritual companionship will enable us to stand and persevere. The third remedy against unbelief is where is your original confidence? Are you preaching the gospel to yourself every day? Are you keeping your eyes firmly on Christ and his work? And the fourth remedy is we need to hear God's voice. We need to intentionally seek hearing him by having your own daily Bible reading and prayer? And are you involved in the ministries of the church that teach the Word and preach the Word to you, like Sunday school and worship, where you can hear God speak through qualified teachers and preachers expositing the Word of God? The third and final application. How are you trying to avoid the pitfalls of being the spiritually privileged? We are wonderfully privileged here at Carriage Lane. Maybe you've been wonderfully privileged as well by growing up in a fine Christian home or you're in a Christian home right now. You have heard the voice of God from his word. You've you've seen the deliverances in God's gospel promises. But so did those in the wilderness. And yet their hearts became hard. Don't take what you have been exposed to for granted. This is a warning not to be complacent or grow apathetic. It's easy for spiritually privileged people to just get comfortable with the Christian language and the Christian culture and we lose our first love. What did the Israelites fail to do? They didn't heed these warnings. They quickly longed for the comforts of the world instead of God and his promised land and his rest. They grumbled. They focused on what they wanted and didn't have instead of focusing on God and what they had in Him as His people. They failed to exercise these remedies. We must not perpetuate the sins of Israel. May God cause us to be attentive to these warnings and to take care. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank You for Your Word. It it cuts us. It convicts us, and it should. That's evidence of your Holy Spirit at work. So, Lord, continue that work. Show us where we need to change. Show us where we're not applying these warnings to our life. Oh, Lord, resensitize us to your gospel and to your word. Lord, help us to be faithful, follow through, to persevere in our Christian life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.